praise God. Hopefully, uh, <clears throat> um, yeah. we'll try to fix that after the service is over. Well, we're in Revelation chapter 4 and for chapter 5, as I shared with you um, in the worship service, and we've read the scripture already. Um, one of the great questions that all of us need to answer as we take our journey through the book of Revelation is this question that I think is, um, is, is central to the entire book. For too long, have, if you've been around the church long enough, you have um, probably digested the book of Revelation as talking about the things that are in the future. And although it is that, it is meant to be a letter that is written to a particular time in a particular place. We just finished the, uh, the seven letters through the book of Revelation, which are found in chapter 2 and chapter 3. And we have discovered that those seven churches represent all of the churches. And that Jesus is speaking to the church in, uh, in its day and time when John was on the island of Patmos, but he's also speaking to us right here, right now. Seven is a number of completion, and you, you've seen even in the scripture reading this morning, the, the use of the number of 777 is found throughout the entire book of Revelation. Seven is a unique number. And um, at the very end of, of Revelation chapter, chapter 3, it actually says this. Actually, it uh, should say 3-5. It shouldn't say 3-5 at all. It's, that's a wrong um, thing, um, reference there. should say 3-21 and 22. To him who overcomes, I will give you the right to sit on my throne, just as I have overcome. I sat down at my father, my, with my father on his throne. He who has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And so the message that is found after every letter is this repeated phrase, he who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the seven churches. And to the seven churches means to all of us who have hearing of what God has to say to us. And so the question that I have for you today is a question that I think is found throughout the rest of the book of of, of, of Revelation. It's simply this. How does one live in a world like this? How does one live in a world like this? How does one live in the year 95 when there was persecution and where there was a Roman government that was seeking to be a military and a superpower? How does one live in this small, little, small churches that are found in the, the place of Asia Minor in Turkey? How are you to live out when you are not part of the, of the, power, um, uh, uh, the power structure of that day and time? And really, it's the same question that we have here in 2023. How, how do you live in Bakersfield, California, in in, in, in the United States of America, in this modern age with so many different things going on, how are we supposed to live in this day and time? You see, Revelation is not supposed to be a book for you to speculate about the future. 
It's not supposed to be a book for you to figure out all of the little um, symbols and allegories and try to fix it to a specific time and place in our day and time. It's supposed to give you pictures to help you to go, how am I supposed to live in this world? How am I supposed to live as a follower of the Lamb of God, of a Christian not as a Democrat or a Republican, not as an American or a Russian or a European, but how am I supposed to live as a believer in the one who sits on the throne? How am I supposed to live? And so there are, there are, there are several things that, that kind of describe our world today. We live in a world where it is anti-God. I don't know if you realize that or not, but sometimes in this little, this little place called Bakersfield in Kern County, we feel like everybody's for God. But really, we are living in a greater world that is anti-God, that is against the things of the kingdom of God, that is devoted to what I call opulence or luxury and wealth. Luxury and wealth is honored and worshiped today above suffering and poverty, who are consistently opposed to the ways of Christ. How are we supposed to live when God calls us to turn the other cheek, walk the extra mile, to live a life of purity and righteousness and holiness in a world that says there is no right or wrong and that everything goes and that there is not, there's not this sense of, of, of absolute truth that is found in God's word. How are we supposed to live in a world that is full of itself? That glorifies the human being instead of glorifying the one who created the human being? How are we supposed to live in a world that is protected by military power? And what we see today on the world stage is really a power struggle. When you step back and look at it, you've got Russia and China. You've got United States and the European Union. You've got the nations that, that feel like they have no power at all because they do not have a mighty army. And we feel like we glorify those who have wealth and power and military power who are aiming to dominate the world as a superpower. And today there is a, another arms race, another journey between the West and the East of determining who is the dominant power in our world today. The dominant military power, the dominant uh, economic power, the dominant political force that is happening today. And they are driven by economic exploitation in anyone, in anything. In other words, they will beat you down and tear you up so that they can get richer and use wealth for their own selfish purposes. This is the world we live in, my friends. We live in a world that is bent on doing evil. We live in a world where the beast is winning. We live in a world that seems like God is not on the throne. Yet here in the middle of Revelation at the very beginning where go, before God ever begins to communicate his judgments upon the world, he wants to clearly identify who is on the throne. Who is to be worshipped and who is to be honored. 
The Bible tells us over in uh, 1 John, it says this, Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the cravings of sinful men, the lust of the eyes, the boasting of what he has and does, comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and his desires pass away, but the man who does the will of God forever will live forever. So we find here, right in the, very, in the, book, in the book of 1 John, written by, we don't know if it's the same John that's on the island of Patmos, but the same, theory, the same spirit is here, that we are not to love this world. Even though it says in John 3.16, for God so loved the world. And what he means by that is that God so loved the world that is broken by sin that he was willing to offer his one and only son to die for the world, to die for you and I, so that we could live no longer loving this world, but loving the one who died for this world. Because this world is going to pass away. This world is bent on sin. You see, to embrace the world was to stand opposed to the revelation of God in Christ. The world, due to its alien spirit toward God and all that is holy, creates opportunities for temptation, for appeal to normal appetites that lead us to sinful appetites, so that it can mislead you to misuse the good gifts that God has given to you to value the things of this world greater than the things that, of the one who created this world. God wants us to love him more than we love the world. And so right from the get-go here, John wants to say to us in the book of Revelation, Jesus wants to say to us, how are we to live in this world? We are to live in this world by being people who worship God. Who worship him. Who worship him in such a way that our lives are wonderfully transformed. And so two things I want you to see. Chapter 4 and chapter 5 are like, are like two sides of a coin. They are visions of worship. The worship that is happening in all of eternity that is happening right now here on the planet earth by those who are followers of Jesus Christ. How are we, the people who put our faith in Christ, who've been wonderfully transformed, how are we to live in this world? We first of all live as a people who worship God as creator. We worship him as the creator He's the one who created you. He's the one that created me. He's the one that created the mountains. He's the one that created the valleys. He created the, the universe. He is the start of it all. Amen. And that, my friends, radically changes the way you live. You live differently when you recognize that who you are and what you experience in this world is being created by God himself. The very beginning of the word of God says, in the beginning, in the beginning, what did God do? He created the heavens and the earth. He created everything that you see. And so, so as John is beginning to 
reveal his second revelation, his second vision. Remember, the very first vision is found before the letters where he reveals Jesus Christ who is standing there in all of his wonder and his glory and his beauty. And then he goes on to give the seven letters. And towards the very end of the, of the seven letters, he even says to the church in Laodicea, he says, he says this, those whom I love are rebuke and discipline, so be earnest and repent. And then he says this, here I am, I stand at the door and knock, and if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. Well, the vision that starts out, starts out with a door. It's a door that God gives to John. And notice what it says. After this, I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. He's standing there, and he looks, and he sees this door, and it's opened up. And he hears a voice, and the voice says to him like a trumpet, come on up here. Come on up here. I want to show you. I want you to see the things that, 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 that I have done for you. I want you to see the glory of God. And i got to get my notes here, right? Thank you. I want you to see. He says, come up here. I will show you what must soon take place. And at once in the spirit, at once in the spirit, it says, there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. He looks and what does he see? He sees heaven and in the center of heaven is a throne. A throne. It's a picture to say Rome is not in charge. Russia is not in charge. The United States is not in charge. Babylon is not in charge. Nebuchadnezzar is not in charge. Whoever the military political leader of the day, in that day and time, he's saying to the seven churches, and he says to us here at Olive Knowles, I am sitting on the throne. I am sitting on the throne. And you see the throne represents, and by the way, I found this picture and I thought, wow. There's lots of pictures on the internet trying to describe this, by the way. And it's all imaginary. We don't have any idea what John saw. But it seems to me that this was the rainbow and the light and somebody sitting on the throne and the 24 elders that are around it. And there's lightning going out from the throne. I mean, this is a magnificent throne. None like you've ever seen on earth. And the scripture goes on to say this. It says, it says, the throne symbolizes the absolute sovereignty of God. You see, in, sometimes in a world where we feel like God is not winning, God is not on the throne, John and Jesus wants to say to us and to the churches of the seven churches, which includes us, I am on the throne and I will have the last word and I will speak the last word in your life. The last word is not evil. It's not sickness. It's not sin. It's not war. It's not, it's not, it's not a, a, a economic uh, uh, um, uh, divisions or economic suppression of our world. It's not all the things. And, and unfortunately today, we, we as Americans don't fully understand what it's like to be an oppressed people. 
to be a people of the minority, to be the people who are not the seat of power, who do not have wealth and, 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 and riches and military and a government that has nuclear power and an army that is the greatest army in human history. Imagine the people who are sitting in Ukraine or the people who are sitting in the Sudan or the people who, are, who feel like they have no voice in China or in the coldness of Russia where they wonder if there's ever going to be somebody who is going to set them free from oppression. This is the picture that John wants to give to us. A picture to liberate us and say that I am on the throne. But you could also make it personal for yourself. Because God says I'm on the throne and I'm going to have the last word. And the question could come to you and ask you simply this. Who sits on the throne of your heart? Who sits on the throne of your heart? And before you just easily say, oh, God's on the throne of my heart. You have to ask yourself, what do you really worship? What do you really worship? Because sometimes we can sing the songs and we can go through the motions, but we could be people who worship almighty dollar more than almighty God. We can worship a political party over almighty God. We can worship a sports figure or a a, a megastar like the Swifties. Sorry, Kaylee. <laughs> I know you love the Swifties. <laughs> but there's a, there's a whole worship that's going on in our world today that are worshiping all kinds of created things, believing that that will give them strength and honor. But the scripture goes on to say this, in the center of that around the throne were four living creatures. And notice what it says. Day and night, day and night, they never stop saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Never stopping. And then it goes on to say the 24 elders fall down. And who are the 24 elders? Most believe that it's the, the 12 patriarchs of the Old Testament and the 12 apostles of the New Testament that are around the throne. And before him sits that throne and they worship him who lives forever and ever. And they lay their crowns. They lay all of their created things, all the things that they find of worth and value. They lay before the feet of, of the one who sits on the throne. And they begin to say, you are worthy, O Lord, God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by, but by your will they were created and have, been create, have, been, have their being. Notice that their acknowledgement of God as the creator. They acknowledge that he created them, he created everything and when you start worshiping the creator over the created, my friends, you begin to be transformed from the inside out. 
You march by a different, different drumbeat. You begin to live in this world as the salt and the light of the world. You begin to live as a person who doesn't put value and worth in created things, but you put value and worth in the one who created things. It changes the way you view your money. It changes the way you view your homes. It changes the way you view your stuff. It changes the way you view all things on this planet. I was driving across southwest United States last week on our way to Oklahoma. And if you've ever driven 40 from California to Oklahoma, there's not a lot of stuff. Okay? I put the car in, in cruise control and I sat back and I went straight for hundreds of miles. But as I am driving, I've got the radio on and I'm listening to 63 message on Sirius XM and I am just worshiping the Lord. I see the mountains, I see the desert, I see the I see the I see the flatness, I see the sometimes the utter you can just look for miles and miles and see nothing and what do I see? I see the hand of God. And I just worship him for he is the one who created us. Have you ever just stopped and been so overwhelmed with his presence because of the beauty and creativity of God who creates? The heavens and the earth declare his glory, his honor, his majesty, and his beauty. Well, how does one live in a world like this? You worship the lamb. Not only do you worship the God who is a creator, but you worship the lamb who is alone is worthy. Because the picture changes a little bit in chapter 5. As he is in, he's in the spirit now, he's looking at the throne. He sees all of the glory and he sees all of the, the, the spirit around him and all of the, the, um, the, the 24 elders who are praising him and saying he is, he is worthy to be honored because he is the creator. But then it says this, then I saw in the right hand of him who sits on the throne. So imagine this throne that we saw a picture of. And he sees that on the throne is this is, is God. It doesn't say it in chapter 4, but it implies it. That is, it is God the Father who is sitting on the throne. And then it says, I saw in his right hand what, what seemed to be a scroll with writings on both sides. And it was sealed, not with one seal, but with seven seals. And if I had time, we could talk about the significance of that, but I do not. I want you to see there that, that, that what's in the scroll that is sealed up with seven seals 
It contains the full account of what God in his sovereign will has determined as the destiny of the world. Now just let that settle for a moment. Because sometimes when we look at the world, we go, I don't know. I mean, who wins? And what's going to happen? And we get worried. We get frightened. We start living not as the people of the Lamb, but we start living as the people of fear. He says, the scroll was there, and he says, well, who's going to open the scroll? Who's going to tell us what's going to happen? Who's going to show us? Who's going to be in charge? Because, God, it's, it's kind of crazy around here right now. John could say, they'd stuck me on an island. I don't have a voice anymore. I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll and even look inside. Here is John standing in the middle of, of this incredible vision he sees the glory of God. He's been worshiping the one who sits on the throne as the creator. He has been experiencing his power and his might. Flashes of lightning and rumblings and, and what looks like uh, the, some of the most glorious stones and, and gems of the world could ever there was there. And he's looking at this and he's going, wow. He sees the scroll. But no one is able to open it. And what does John start to do? I wept. I wept and wept. And the indication is this was not just a little bit of crying, but this is weeping. Weeping before the throne. Oh God, what are we going to do? No one's able to open the scroll. It's been sealed up now for centuries. We can't find anybody. Is the darkness going to continue? Is evil going to win? I don't know about you, but sometimes in my worship experiences, I cry. Have you ever just been overwhelmed with the presence of God? And so moved that it moves you to tears? As I was driving across to Oklahoma, Jane said to me one time, are you crying? And I was trying to control myself, you know, not let it out. Like, yeah. John is weeping. Then 
one of the elders said to me, do not weep. See, the lamb of the tribe of Judah, of the root of David, has triumphed. Two very common messianic terms found in the Old Testament. The lamb, the lamb who is the, who is the, of the tribe of Judah and the root of David, all the way going back, all the way to David, one of the great warriors and the great leaders of Israel. He is able to open the scroll and the seven seals. You see, Jesus Christ who died on a cross for us, who rose again from the dead, wasn't just a sacrificial lamb and then his job was over. He continues to reign in heaven and he is the one who was about to ready to open up the seals and to display God's judgments and God's discipline and God's movement upon the entire earth. Look, the lion Mighty power. I mean, I don't know about you, but I ain't getting in a cage with a lion. But I would with a lamb. And so what does John do? He turns and he looks. And the scripture says this. Then I saw a lamb. And I love the description. Looking as if it had been slain, standing in the center of the throne. Encircled by those four living creatures that he described in chapter 4. But this lamb was was like no other lamb he had ever seen before because the lamb had seven horns and seven eyes which are the seven spirits of God. Again, the use of the word seven, the use of the number seven, sent over all the earth, and he came and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. The lion is the lamb. The ultimate power of God, and it is manifest itself in the most powerful force ever on the face of the earth, the cross. Which is foolishness to those who are perishing, but it is the power of God to those who put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. How are you supposed to live in a world You are to live as one who worships the one who overcame the world through his death and his resurrection. Earlier in the image in chapter 1 of Jesus, you'll find the sword that is not in his right hand, but that is in his mouth. And God uses his mouth to bring judgment and to bring victory upon the earth. 
as we proclaim Jesus Christ and as we worship the Lord, we also witness for the Lord. And we witness to the Lamb who took the sins of the world upon himself, who ultimately is going to come a second time and reign on this earth. How are you supposed to live? You're to live as worshiping people. What does this mean to you? Three things I would say as we conclude this morning. First, worship is always rooted in the creation and the redemption of Jesus Christ. I love what uh, N.T. Wright says here. He says, there are two golden rules at the heart of spirituality. You become like what you worship. When you gaze in awe, in admiration and wonder at something or someone, you begin to take on something of the character of the object of your worship. Those who worship money become eventually human calculating machines. Those who worship sex become obsessed with their own attractiveness or prowess. Those who worship power become more and more ruthless. So what happens when you worship the creator, God, whose plan is to rescue the world and put its rights and put to it to, to rights have been accomplished by the lamb who was slain? The answer is in the second golden rule. Because you were made in God's image, worship makes you more truly human. When you gaze in love and gratitude at God in, the, in whose image you were made, you indeed grow and you discover more of what it means to be fully alive. Conversely, when you give that same total worship to anything or anyone, you shrink as a human being. It doesn't, of course, feel like the same thing at the time, but when you worship part of creation as though it is the creator himself, in other words, you worship an idol, you may well feel a brief high but like hallucinating on drugs, that worship achieves its effect at a cost. And when the effect is over, you are less human being than you when you began the price of your idolatry. And that's why people go from one thing to another to worship. When they don't acknowledge God as creator and redeemer, Nothing satisfies. What satisfied one moment? You need a higher moment. You need a bigger thing. You need a bigger megastar. In our world today, there will be hundreds of thousands of peoples in stadiums worshiping football. There will be hundreds of thousands of people who, are, who watch the Ryder Cup. There'll be hundreds of thousands of people who will go to a concert and worship a star. There's people in Wall Street, 
or on Main Street or wherever where they worship the almighty dollar. And it's never enough. We, as the people of Christ, worship is rooted in in creation and redemption. In other words, the creator who created and the one who died for us and redeemed us. But it's also, worship, second of all, comes to us in an expression of verbal praise and thanksgiving. One of the things you'll discover in chapter 4 and chapter 5 is that the living creatures and the angels begin to sing. They sing, they sing, they sing. I've had people come to church and say, well, I don't know about that singing stuff, so I come for the sermon. Because the sermon is what I really like. But that singing stuff, I don't like the songs and I don't like to sing, so I'm not going to sing. Could I just tell you? Singing is part of our praise to Almighty God. We sing to Him. We sing about Him. We sing about what He's done. We sing about what He's doing. We sing about what He's going to do. We sing about His character. We sing about his love. We sing about his holiness. We sing and we sing and we sing. If you are a Christian, you are a singing people. So join the choir, amen? The choir that sings praise to our Lord. We also are people full of gratitude. We are grateful for what he has done for us. And as we worship him regularly, every Sunday, every day, and we rehearse the story of God, it wells up within us a spirit of thanksgiving. We are grateful people. Instead of being complainers and stingy, and fearful, we are people who live and celebrate victory we have now and victory we'll have tomorrow. You'll notice there that it says, in a loud voice, they sang. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Even after all, in, the, in chapter 6 through 18, there are these judgments that are going to be poured out upon the earth. And after every single judgment, there is a glimpse back to heaven and a back to praise. Songs are found throughout the entire book of Revelation. Because that's what the people of God do. There's one more. Worship also leads us to a life of allegiance in the way of the Lamb. Over and over and over again, Jesus said to those seven churches, remain faithful. Don't give up. Keep going even when you don't feel like it. Don't surrender 
Keep your eyes on the one who overcame, who stands in the middle of the church. Don't be like those who fall away, who do it for a time. Don't give up. Oh, Lord, worship. It's the heart of what we do and who we are. We worship you this morning. We surrender our lives to you. We lift our voices and our hearts in praise and adoration. You're the God of creation. You are almighty. Your son is the Lamb of God who took upon himself the sins of the world, who sits on the throne with a sword coming out of his mouth, the lion and the lamb. May we walk in allegiance to you as people of the one who sits on the throne. Stand with me, would you? And let's sing the song, I Surrender All. If you need to pray, you're welcome to come and pray. But let's just lift our voices in a chorus of surrender and praise to Jesus. Jesus.